So, I don't know if you've been following the news lately. What do we have in the headlines? Tsunami and nuclear crisis in Japan. Civil war in Libya and unrest throughout the Middle East. Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Drug war in Mexico, the threat of terrorism. We've got poverty in Africa and poverty here in America. We've got bankruptcy and foreclosures. We have unemployment and bickering politicians. We have shooting sprees and incurable diseases. You ever get the feeling that something's just not right with this world? You ever feel like life is not what it was meant to be? That life is not functioning as it was created to function? That something's just not right? Well, well that is a biblically accurate feeling. Look at the end of Genesis chapter 1. God has just created the world and at the end of the chapter he gives his stamp of approval. He looks at the world and he declares it is all very good. Everything in the world is perfect but that doesn't last long. Three chapters later, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve choose to sin. They choose to rebel against God. They invite sin into the world and with it the pain and destruction that always accompanies sin. And sin grows rapidly. Don't know if you know how the story plays out. Next chapter, Genesis chapter 4. Humanity doesn't ease into sin. We don't start with the little stuff like a, a white lie or laziness. No, we swing for the fences. Cain kills Abel. We start with premeditated murder. That's the first sin after the fall. You read the book of Genesis, just the first book of the Bible, and it reads like an R-rated movie. It's full of of war and murder and slavery and abuse and, and infertility and all kinds of immorality and dysfunctional families and starvation and drought. It's awful. What was very good turns out to be very broken very quickly. But Genesis isn't all bad news. Because right after Adam and Eve fall... God promises to do something new. Genesis chapter 3, right after their sin, God shows up and he promises restoration. That's the storyline of scripture. From Genesis 3 to the end of the book of Revelation, the story is God is fixing what humanity has broken. God will restore what we have ruined. He will lead creation back to what it was meant to be. He will make the world right once again. And he will do that through his servants. If you read the Bible, you come across this word over and over again, servant or slave. It's really the, the same word in Hebrew, same idea in the ancient world. In the Old Testament, it's, it's a Hebrew word, abed. It was used 800 times in the Old Testament. It's actually one of the most common words you will find in your Old Testament. So servant or, or slave. Um, we hear those words, and particularly the word slave, it, it gets a very negative ring in our ears. Because we, as a country, have a past of of really ugly racial slavery and discrimination. Uh, That's what we think of. Well, often when one human being is a slave of another human being, it tends towards evil and abuse. But that's never true of people being slaves of God. Whenever you see that concept in scripture, that human beings are slaves or bondservants of God, it's always a positive thing. Actually, in in the Bible, to be a servant or slave of God is one of the most privileged things you can be called. It's only the best people in the Bible that are called servants or slaves of God. It's an exalted position. God is the, the perfect master. He is always good. He gives to his servants eternally significant tasks. He gives them the opportunity to change the world for all eternity for good. 
So this idea of being a slave or a servant of God, it's never a negative thing in the Bible. It's always great. It's a privilege. It's an exalted position. Now we read through the Old Testament and we encounter many servants of God. The the biggest servant, if you will, is the nation of Israel. Whole nation was called to be God's servant to the world, to bring about restoration. Leviticus 25. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God is saying that the whole reason he brought Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, the whole reason for the exodus and for their emancipation was so that they could become the servants of God. So that they could, be a, could become a nation of servants. Similar thing is said in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 19. Here is the reason for the nation of Israel's existence. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The entire nation of Israel was chosen to be God's servants, to serve as a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that phrase mean, kingdom of priests? You see it often in the Bible. Well, what does a priest do? A, a priest represents God to people and people to God. That's what a priest does. He, he serves by drawing people to God. That's what priests are designed to do. Well, God is saying the entire nation of Israel, all of the Jews were called to be priests to the world. To be the kingdom of priests who draws the world to God. Now, I don't know if you can identify this, but um, years ago when I used to read the Old Testament, I would read the Old Testament and I would feel like it has absolutely nothing to say to me. The whole Old Testament, it's all about the Jews. It's about how God loves them and chose them and called them and blesses them and makes promises to them and works through them. It's, It's all about God's love for the Jews. Well, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Gentile. So I'd read the Old Testament and I'd conclude it has nothing to do with me. You read the Old Testament and it feels like God is the opposite of anti-Semitic. Like he loves the Jews and no one else. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong. I really dove in and studied the Old Testament some years ago and I came to understand the whole reason that God chose the Israelites, the Jews, is because he loves the world. He, he chose the Jews because he loves the world. The whole Old Testament is about God's unconquerable love for the world. The Jews are simply the instrument, the tool by which God will express his love and grace to the world. That's why the Jews were chosen, to be channels of God's grace to the world, to draw all the world back to him. That's what the Old Testament's about. But unfortunately, the Israelites failed. The nation of Israel did not turn out to be the servants that God called them to be. Uh, Look back at Exodus 19. Notice how it starts. It starts with a condition. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my servant. But that's exactly what Israel did not do. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, they disobeyed generation after generation. They rebel against God. They violate his covenant. That's referring to the Mosaic covenant. The the gift of laws that God gave to the nation of Israel so they would know how to please him over and over again, generation after generation, violates that covenant. They rebel against God. That's the sad story of the Old Testament. This nation that was chosen to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of servants, they're as broken as every other nation around them. They're as rebellious as everyone else. And so as the Old Testament progresses, God calls up particular individuals to be servants to the servant, 
particular Israelites who will serve the servant, who will help draw the nation of Israel back to God. These are men like Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Isaiah, and many others. Faithful servants who would be a servant to the servant to help lead Israel back to the Lord. Unfortunately, despite their best efforts, Israel didn't come. Israel continued in rebellion and the rest of the world continued in rebellion as well. We get to the book of Isaiah and now Israel's in exile because of their rebellion. And so finally God promises to raise up one servant above all other servants, one ideal servant through whom he will finally accomplish all that he intends for the world. And Isaiah has a lot to say about this ideal servant. So turn to Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, The second half of Isaiah has these really beautiful passages. We call them the servant songs. They kind of read like poetry in the original language. There's four of them. They're four of the most famous passages in your entire Bible. They're quoted like crazy in the New Testament. It's Isaiah 42 and 49, which we'll study this morning. Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 52 to 53, which we'll study next week. Four servant songs that Isaiah wrote about this ideal servant who would come to the world who would come and bring God's restoration to the world. Look with me in chapter 49. Here's what Isaiah says about this ideal servant. Starting in verse one. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. Uh, Now, so far, it's a little confusing. Uh, It starts out sounding like it's a particular person, an individual from the womb. That's that's one person. Uh, But then verse three, God names him Israel. That's the name of the nation. So is this a nation of Israel God has in mind? Well, look at verse five. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. No, the servant is not the nation of Israel. They're distinct. In fact, the servant will be the one who is the savior to Israel, who will lead the nation back to God. The reason that God names this ideal servant Israel in verse three is because he will be the ideal Israelite, the servant with a capital S. He will be the ideal Jew. He will be what the Jews were always intended to be. I like to think of him as like, he's going to be the super Jew. He's going to be the Jew that does everything that God wanted the Jews to do to the world. He's going to do it. One person. Okay, now throughout Isaiah's day, this ideal Israelite was shrouded in mystery. Isaiah never names him. Isaiah didn't know who he would be or when he would show up, but we do. Who, who is this? We know who this is. This is Jesus. Of course, this is Jesus. The whole New Testament is quoting Isaiah over and over again, showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the ideal servant. He is the super Jew who God sent to earth to do all that the Jews were meant to do. Isaiah didn't know his name. Isaiah didn't know that this would be Jesus, but he did know what the servant would do. He knew what Jesus's mission would be and he knew why that mission mattered. He knew what Jesus was gonna come to do and why it would make such a difference. And that's the subject of our passage this morning. As we look at chapters 42 and 49, you can leave your finger in both because we're gonna go back and forth. The first two servant songs are all about the servant's mission. What would he do? What would this ideal servant do when he comes to earth? Okay, turn to chapter 42. Chapter 42, God says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, 
my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. What's the key word of those four verses? Well, it's repeated three times. Justice. That's the big idea of this. When the servant comes, he will bring justice. That's the Hebrew word mishpat. It's a favorite word of Isaiah's. He uses it three times in in just these four verses. He uses it 52 times in his book. He has a ton to say about mishpat. And and justice is a good translation. The word often means just laws. So so laws that tell you what is right and what is wrong. And it's often used of of just judgments in a courtroom, that that the judge comes to the right decision, that he exonerates the, the innocent party. But in passages like this, the word means something broader. It means justice in its broadest sense. It means making all things right. The servant will come to make all things right. That will be the mission of Jesus. That will be the mission of the ideal servant. He will make the world right just in its broadest sense. He will remove all the unrightness from the world. He will return the world to its original intent. He will make all things right so that when God looks down at the planet, he can say it is all good. It is very good. It will be a return to Genesis chapter one. He'll remove all the brokenness and restore all the rightness. Now that begins, if he's going to make all things right, that will begin by making people right with God. This is the root of the problem, that human beings are not right with God. I take you back to a verse we studied at the beginning of the semester, Isaiah 5, 7. God looks down at the world and particularly down at the nation of Israel and here's what he sees. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So God looks down at Israel and what does he not see? He doesn't see mishpat. There is no justice. Israel is not right. They are not right with God, but God promises to fix that. Look back at chapter 49. We saw 49 verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. This is what the servant will do. He will bring Israel back to God. He will make them right with God so that they can once again be God's servants. And he will do it by bringing them a new covenant. Look at verse 8, 49 verse 8. This is how he will make them right. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you. And in a day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people. To restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament, you know it's full of covenants. It's all about God's covenants with his people. God promises the way that he is going to renew and restore Israel is by giving them a new covenant. That's what the servant will do. He will bring a new covenant to Israel. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that's, that is the new covenant that's promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and here in Isaiah. It's the new covenant that began at the crucifixion of Jesus. When he died, he instituted the new covenant. It replaced the old covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a great thing. It told people what they should do to please God, but it lacked something. It didn't give them the desire to do it. 
That's the problem with the Mosaic Covenant. That's the problem that plays out throughout the Old Testament. The nation of Israel knows what to do, but they don't want to do it, so they don't do it. (laughs) They continue to disobey, but God promises to fix that. When the servant brings a new covenant, it will help people not only know what to do, it will give them the desire to do it. That's the beauty of the new covenant. It gives you the desire and ability to obey from the inside. You want to please God. That's what the servant would bring, the new covenant to God's people. He would not only bring that new covenant, he would be that new covenant. That's actually what Isaiah says. The servant will be the new covenant. His blood, his body will bring the forgiveness and the spiritual power and the desire to please God that the new covenant promised. And that new covenant will lead the nation of Israel on a new exodus. It's interesting, you read the servant songs and they're full of exodus language. Exodus, that's when God led the nation of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. God continues to refer back to that language to say, I'm gonna do that again. I'm going to lead you on a new exodus, but this time it won't be out of Egypt. It won't be out of some nation. It will be out of sin and out of slavery to Satan, out of slavery to death, out of the darkness that you have brought upon yourself. I will lead you out of that. I will emancipate you. And not only will God emancipate the nation of Israel, he will emancipate all the world. This salvation, the blessings of the new covenant are not just for Israel. Look back at verse six, 49 verse six. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's it's too small a thing for you, my servant, for you, Jesus, to just bring salvation to Israel. That's not enough. You're too good for that. You're too great for that. I'm gonna make you a servant to the whole world. You will be a light to the whole world, a light of salvation. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's God's message of redemption for the whole world. All human beings can become right with God. All people can come back into relationship with God. And here will be the result. Turn back to chapter 42. Chapter 42, verse 10. When the servant has completed this mission of making human beings right with God, here will be the result. 42, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Salah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. What Isaiah looks forward to is that when the Messiah's mission is complete, When the servant has finished his task, all human beings from one end of this planet to the other will glorify God. From the coastlands to the tops of the mountains, from north to south, all these different countries he mentions, all of humanity will glorify God. The servant will lead all of humanity back to God. He will make us all right with God. But he won't end there. His justice won't just be making us right with God. It will also be making us right with one another. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, Isaiah speaks about this servant, the ideal servant, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. It's interesting as Isaiah describes what the servant will do. He says that when the servant's mission is complete, there will never again be violence on earth. There will never again be war. 
There will be such unending peace that we will never again even need weapons. We won't need to keep our weapons to threaten other people or to maintain the peace. We'll be done with weapons. We'll turn weapons into farming implements. I remember walking my grandfather's farm as a child and it was a very normal farm except for some odd antiques that my grandfather had around from his previous days um, before he was farming. Um, I remember walking this particular fence row and there was this one fence post that was rotted and leaning over and held up by a bright, shiny metal disc that never seemed to rust. Year after year, it never rusted. Well, the reason that it never rusted was because it was the titanium inlet nozzle off the rocket engine of an intercontinental ballistic missile that my grandpa helped design back in the 60s. Seriously. Now, that's a little bit unusual on farms today that an ICBM part is holding up a fence post. But according to Isaiah, when the servant comes back, it won't be unusual at all. We won't need our weapons anymore, so we'll be looking for things to do with the scrap parts of ICBMs. We'll be holding up fence posts with them because you'll never need a weapon again. Not only will you not need a weapon when he returns, you won't need soldiers anymore. No one will learn war. No one will anymore learn the art of war. I'm really, really grateful for what our soldiers, for what um, our servants in the military do for us, but I'm even more grateful that their jobs ultimately are temporary. When the servant returns, there'll never be a need for a soldier again. I imagine they're pretty grateful about that too. Their jobs are temporary because when the servant completes his mission, there will never be violence on earth again. There will never be war. There'll be no need for weapons, no need for soldiers. There will be nothing but unending peace. Just so you understand how significant this promise is, some historians and academics got together and and studied history. They found that since 3600 B.C., The world has only known 292 years of peace. During that entire period, there have been 14,351 wars, both large and small, in which 3.6 billion people have been killed. Since 650 BC, there have also been 1,656 armed races, only 16 of which have not ended in war, and those 16 ended in the economic collapse of the belligerent nations. Can you believe that? Only 292 years of peace. It seems that in this world, along with death and taxes, the one thing you can count on is war. But when the servant returns, that will be finished. There'll be no violence. There will be no war. Not only that, but Isaiah 16. For the extortioner has come to an end. Destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. A throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness." What Isaiah is saying is that when the servant has completed his mission, there will never again be anything like extortion or destruction or oppression anywhere in the world. The human race will forget the meaning of words like abuse because there will never again be anyone who takes advantage of anyone else. I I studied some statistics this week. According to the U.S. State Department in 2005, they put out a report on human trafficking. That's modern-day domestic or sexual slavery. They found that there are 600 to 800,000 people trafficked across international borders every year as domestic or sexual slaves, and most of them are women and children. And of those, somewhere between 14,000 and 17,000 slaves are brought into the United States every year. We just think slavery is over in our country. It's all around us. And yet when the servant returns, that will cease. There will never again be one person taken advantage of by another. 
no violence, no abuse, no oppression, nothing but perfect peace and righteousness, love and justice between human beings. He will make all people right with one another. But he won't stop there. He'll also make all people right with creation. When Adam and Eve chose to sin in Genesis chapter 3, it brought a curse not only upon themselves, but also upon the rest of creation. God proclaimed, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Now when you look at the early chapters of Genesis, you realize the world was made to be nothing but a blessing to mankind. The whole of creation, it was meant to bless us. It was meant to provide for us. It was meant to be good to us. That's what God intended. But when we chose sin, creation was broken. It became cursed. And as a result, the world doesn't produce abundance and and blessings for us. Instead, it produces things like famines and drought and earthquakes and tsunamis and floods. But all that's about to change. When the servant comes back, all that will change. Look with me at chapter 49. Chapter 49, verse 9. Speaking of the arrival of the servant, saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed and their pasture will be on all the bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. Isaiah's point is when the servant's mission is complete, the curse will be removed from creation. As a result, the world will once again give nothing but blessing to human beings. All of the natural disasters we see, they will be at an end. Human beings will be abundantly blessed by the earth. According to the United Nations, a billion people go to bed hungry every day on this planet. And and yet according to Isaiah, when the servant returns, the world will be so prosperous, so abundant that no one will hunger. In in fact, it will be so abundant, these crops that grow throughout the earth, that even on the sides of the road and even on the once bare heights of the mountain, there'll be nothing but crops, abundant food for everyone. No one will hunger again. Also, according to the United Nations, 886 million people right now lack access to clean water. They can't get clean water. And yet this passage promises that when the servant comes, when his mission is complete, no one will even thirst anymore. There will be such an abundance of clean water that the moment you feel thirsty, you just grab some, you got it. He will fix creation. He will fix this world so that humanity and creation are in harmony with one another, so that creation blesses humanity. That's the promise we look forward to. Now let's fast forward 2,500 years after the time of Isaiah to today, to us. We live after the arrival of the servant. Jesus has already come. He came 2,000 years ago. And as we look at this list, we realize that even though the servant has come, most of this stuff hasn't happened yet. In fact, there's only one thing on that list that's happened. It's number one. Jesus has made it possible for humanity to become right with God. Yet it's not complete. There's a lot of human beings that still aren't right with God. Jesus made it possible for human beings to become right with God. That's the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. If a person believes that, they immediately become eternally right with God. They simply trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's great news that the servant, that Jesus has made that possible, that we can become right with God. But the rest of the stuff on this list isn't finished yet. That's why we look forward to Jesus coming back. 
droughts, devastation, slavery, war. They're as frequent in the earth today as they were back in Jesus' day and Isaiah's day. That's why we look forward to the return of Christ. We long and we pray for him to come back so that he can complete his mission, so that he can make all things right once again. The early Christians, after the writing of the New Testament, they used to greet one another with the words Maranatha. It means, come Lord. It means, come back soon, Jesus. They didn't let their their lives and their hopes get fixated on the things of this world. They weren't hoping for the, for the next house, for the next job, for the next whatever. No, they were hoping in Jesus' return. They knew that life will only feel right once Jesus comes back. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can buy. There's nothing that you can get that will make this world feel right to you because it's not right. It won't be right until he comes back. That's why we pray and long for the return of Jesus Christ. He will come and make all things right. That's the first thing Isaiah wants us to understand. The mission of the servant to make the world right, to make people right with God, to make people right with one another, to make people right with creation. Now, the second thing that Isaiah tells us about the servant's mission is that he will make all things right through astounding gentleness. Turn to chapter 42. Chapter 42. Look with me again, starting in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verses 2 and 3 tell us how the servant will make everything right. His MO, his mode of operation will be gentleness. It is through gentleness and humility that he will make the world right. Okay, Isaiah says that in both verses there. Verse 2, he, he uses this threefold repetition. The servant will not cry out. He won't raise his voice. He won't make his voice heard in the streets. Isaiah is emphasizing his, his quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening ministry. He's not going to shout people down. He's not going to promote himself. He's not going to work through pride and arrogance. No, he's going to work through humility and gentleness. Same idea is in play in verse 3. He uses these two images, a A bruised reed, that's talking about the stalk of a reed plant that grew in the the wetlands of the ancient world. And in this particular stalk, it's it's bruised, it's bent, it's it's broken, it's about to fall over, it's weak. It's similar to the dimly lit candle. This is is the wick that's just barely above the wax in the candle. It's got a tiny little flame, it's about to go out. If you just pass it too quickly, just the tiniest breeze, and it's going to be extinguished. Here's Isaiah's point in these images. How do most leaders in this world extend their influence? How do most nations extend their influence? Well, uh, through domination, through conquest. We build big armies to advance our interests in the world. That's, That's how we do it. Well, that's especially true back in the ancient world. Kings, emperors in Isaiah's day, they built their kingdoms on the ashes of their neighbors. They went and conquered and burned and rebuilt. That's how they extended their influence. They ruled through power. They expressed power through conquest and domination. Isaiah's point is when the servant shows up, he'll do exactly the opposite. He will express his power through gentleness. 
He will express his power through humility. He will be so humble. He will be so gentle, so loving that even the weakest among us, the bruised reeds, the the dimly lit wicks among us will not be extinguished. They will be lifted up. They will be cared for. He will care for even the weakest among us. He will be full of gentleness and compassion and grace. That is how he will rule. Julie and I read this uh, rhyming Bible to our kids every night. It was a gift we got when they were born, and uh, it's actually really fun to read. Uh, The first time I read through it, though, it kind of threw me off. It it includes a number of stories of Jesus' life, and obviously they had to be selective. They could only include a few of the stories. So they have his birth, and they have his death and resurrection, but all the stories in between, um, they're all gentle stories. They chose all the gentle stories for the kids. It's like when Jesus welcomes the kids to him, when he heals the lame man, when he raises the little girl from the dead. And the first time I read that rhyming Bible, I thought, why why are you presenting such a gentle Jesus? What about all the strong stuff, the powerful stuff? But then I realized, you know what? For Luke and Gracie, other than that Jesus died for them, rose from the dead, and is the son of God, which they include all that stuff, probably the most important thing for them to know about Jesus is that he's a king unlike any other. That he's a king who rules through gentleness. He's a king who will conquer the world through love, through humility. He will not express power through domination or conquest like every other ruler on earth. He will express power through humility. Now, unfortunately, that's not how the world works. So Isaiah prophesies ahead of time that the world will mistake the servant's gentleness for weakness. They will misunderstand who he is. Look at chapter 49. Chapter 49, verse 7. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Let's pause there. What Isaiah is saying is that when the servant comes, he will rule through gentleness and humility, and as a result, the world is going to laugh. The world is going to reject him. The leaders of this world are going to look at his gentleness, at his humility, and they're going to laugh. They're going to despise him. They're going to reject him. And not just the Gentile nations, but his own people. The leaders of Israel are going to reject him. That proved true. You you read the gospel accounts. Have you ever wondered why did Israel reject their Messiah? Why did the nation of Israel reject their king? Well, here's why. Because after some centuries of being dominated by these other nations, and and most recently by the Roman Empire, they grew desperate for a military messiah. They fixated their hope on a military messiah who would come in and wipe out the Romans. That's what they wanted. And when Jesus shows up in humility and gentleness and grace, they don't want that. They're not interested in humility. And so they crucify him. That's why they rejected their king. Good news is, their rejection is not God's final word. God gives the Messiah, the servant, victory. Look at the rest of verse 7. 49 verse 7. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Isaiah's point is God will vindicate his humble servant. God will work through the servant to humble the entire world. When the servant's mission is complete, all these kings, all the other rulers of this world will stand in awe and then bow in submission. They will bow before their humble king. God's point is that through the servant, God is going to demonstrate once and for all that true power is expressed in humility. 
True power is demonstrated in gentleness. That's what honors God and that's what God honors. That will be the MO of the servant. The ideal servant will rule through humility and gentleness, compassion and grace. Through gentleness, he will make all things right. He will make people right with God, people right with one another, and people right with creation. That's what we look forward to. That's why we long for the return of Christ. He will make all things right. That's what we pray for. But now I want to close with this question. What do we do in the meantime? We're waiting for him to come back. We can't control when he comes back. We don't know when he's going to come back. What do we do while we're waiting? Well, easy answer to that. For all of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are all now servants of God. Just as the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was chosen to be the servants of God, so now the church, the people of God, united to Christ through faith, we are all called to be servants of God. We're called to follow in the example of the ideal servant, to follow his example, to follow in his footsteps. We're called to join in his mission. This mission that Jesus is all about, that's to be the mission that characterizes our life. Do you want to know? Why are you here on earth? You're here to do this. You're here to do what Jesus is doing. You're here to join in his mission. So let me turn it into a question for you. Are you dedicating your life, your time, your money, your talents, your resources to making all things right? And let's let's take each of those in turn. Are you dedicating your life to helping people become right with God? Are you telling the people around you how they can be right with God through the gospel? Are you sharing that good news that human beings right now can become eternally right with God if they will simply believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead? Are you sharing that great news with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your friends, with your family? Now we have a great opportunity for you. Right here, Southwood Campus, in a week and a half, we're going to have the Easter extravaganza. That's Thursday right before Easter. Uh, That event is designed to be an opportunity to easily invite neighbors, coworkers, friends, family who don't know Jesus to come out here, have a bunch of fun, bunch of free food, and then they'll hear the gospel. They will hear the good news of how they can be right with God. We'll present the gospel to their kids. We'll present the gospel to the adults. Just bring them. All you got to do is bring them. Please be thinking right now, who can you invite out? Who else in your life can you be sharing the good news of the gospel with? Who can you be telling the good news that they can be eternally right with God through faith in Jesus Christ? So are you dedicating your life to helping people become right with God? Second, are you dedicating your life to helping people become right with one another? Are you an example of peace? Do you follow the example of Jesus? Are you a gentle person? Are you compassionate? Are you gracious? When people look at you, do you they, are, are they astounded? Are they awed at how gentle and humble you are? Because that's what God wants. That's true power. That's true greatness in the eyes of God is that you're gentle and humble. That's what Jesus exemplified and that's what should characterize our lives. We should be astounding examples of gentleness and humility to the people around us. Are you sacrificing your rights and desires to give to others, to be gentle and humble and caring and loving to others? Not just the people in your family, but your neighbors, your coworkers, acquaintances. Are you sacrificing your rights and desires to serve and love them? You know, when we look at the history of the church, the church at its best is the mo- has been the most powerful force on earth for justice and peace. You look at guys like William Wilberforce who, who crusaded against slavery in England and brought it to an end. You look at women like Corrie ten Boom who risked her life to, to save Jews from Nazi Germany. 
The church at its best is the most powerful tool on earth for justice and peace. Are you participating in that? Are you an example of peace and compassion to the world? And finally, are you investing your life in helping people become right with creation? Are you giving your time and money, talents and resources to help those who are suffering from the curse on this earth? There's lots of people right now who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are desperate for help. Are you helping them? Are you giving to their needs? Are you sacrificing your money, your time, your talents to care for those who are in need? As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called by God to push back against the curse wherever we find it. Whether it be people suffering from a tsunami in Japan, people without water in Africa, people without a home in Haiti, we're called to push back against the curse wherever we can. Now, let me clarify one thing. We need to remember a couple things here. Number one, we will not be able to bring an end to violence on earth or we will not be able to make creation right. We can't do those two things. Only Jesus can do those. Creation and humanity await the arrival or the return of Jesus Christ to be made right. Uh, Second thing we need to remember, of this list of three things, the first is by far the most important. It's the most important by an infinite margin. If, if you sacrifice your money to give a guy a bottle of water and that's all you give him, well, you keep him alive for one more day, but he still spends eternity in hell. You haven't given him much. So should you give to tsunami relief in Japan and digging wells in Africa and building orphanages in Haiti? Yes, you should, but make sure you choose to give to those who will share the gospel while they're digging the well, who will share the gospel while they're handing out water who will share the gospel in the orphanage that they build because that's the greatest gift you have. Give, but give with the gospel. So why are we on earth? We are on earth to be servants like Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, to participate in his mission. Are you sacrificing your time, your talents, your money, your life to make things right, to help people become right with God, right with one another, right with creation? That's why you're here. Let's pray for God's help to be his servants. Lord God, thank you so much for giving us such an honorable calling. Thank you that we who are sinners, who are unworthy, that you have chosen us to be your servants, to follow in the example of Jesus Christ. Thank you for making that possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that he died in our place. Thank you that we are right with you through him. And Lord, we pray, please, Father, fill us with your spirit and please give us Jesus' humility. Please break us of our pride and our selfishness. Please help us to be gentle and compassionate like him. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who give, who who sacrifice, who are gentle, who are gracious. I pray that we would astound the world, that the world would be in awe of us as we follow the example of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would be a generation who gives. I pray that we would be a generation who above all else gives the gospel, that we would share it with everyone around us. Please, Father, help us to take full advantage of this time of the year as Easter approaches. Help us to be sharing with our neighbors, Lord, with our coworkers, with our family who don't yet know you. Help us to share with them the good news that they can be right with you for all eternity through belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, help us to be bold in sharing that news. Father, I pray that you would be with us. I pray that you would strengthen us. Help us to follow the example of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.